I started trading tapes a few years later. So when I was 12 years old, I started trading tapes and my friends, I, I was asking them to send me things and, and, you know, I would occasionally buy tapes, 10, $15 a pop. I did the HTML for John McAdam in exchange for tapes. And John had a very extensive collection. So I got a lot of stuff from him. Welcome to another edition of Stitch Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is Stitch Wrestling, a podcast primarily focusing on classic pro wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're doing 80s again, 1983 WWF. Before we get rolling on that, part two of what looks like is going to be a three-part series reviewing that. Um, before I get to that, I want to invite you to follow me on Twitter. Just search John McAdam and put in and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. I want to thank everyone who so far has donated $13.95 to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I'll get around to thanking everyone next week. And I want to bring on our frequent co-host, Steve Generelli. Steve, can you tell the world about the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group? Oh, I'd be happy to. Uh, we have some great uh, people sharing some great information. Uh, Kevin Waterhouse discussed the early days of pro wrestling action figures and shared a great uh, memory about him, him and his older brother with the action figures. I uh, did see that. It was very nice. Um, Connor Carey uh, asked about a future show, a future sick to wrestling, discussing the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. Which we've done, but I think we're, we're kind of due to revisit. Mm-hmm. And we had both the great Warren Beasley and Mark Rock and Roland both speculated about the upcoming Von Erich movie, The Iron Claw. That's right, Mark. And I am looking to next week's uh, Tennessee-Alabama game. Hopefully we can make it two in a row. <laughs> two wins in a row, not two games in a row. We there have a game go. every year. Um, but anyway, and, and someone uh, posted a couple of things that were posted. Um, I said that this is the last of our quarterly WWF reviews. We're doing fall 1983, and it's the last one. Don't worry, kids. It's being replaced by something else. More to come on that, but like this segment's not going bye-bye. It's just changing. Um, S.K. Lee wrote something interesting. He said that, you know, current wrestling fans complain that, you know, the current product has changed. It's, it's not what it once was, and he compared it to uh, today's basketball fans complaining about the, the plotting day of, uh, days of the 1990s in the NBA. And I'm like, uh, SK, you might want to check out a 70s NBA game if you want to <laughs> see plotting. Uh, but that's the thing. And, and this show, I'm, I'm celebrating the, the end of the Backland era WWF, but I'm also a little bit sad, saddened by it. And I get it. Everything changes. The only thing that does not change is the fact that change is constant. Uh, we have seen the wrestling business change so much since the wrestling Steve and I grew up on went away. And it's okay, I get it, but at the same time, we kind of have to, you know, man, it's been 40 years since Vince McMahon put a wrecking ball through the, the wrestling business and, and just changed it quite radically in 1984, and we're going to be discussing those changes, don't worry. <laughs> well, one thing I would say, uh, you know, in, in this period we're talking about, 1983, we're, we're hearing the very beginning of uh, the use of wrestling entrance themes and music and 
back then it was so exciting to hear, I mean, even to hear Sergeant Slaughter come out to the uh, Marine Corps theme <laughs> was exciting. Uh, and, but of course, it was even more exciting to hear uh, JYD come out to uh, his theme, uh, Another One Bites the Dust, or uh, when Windermann Rotundo came out to Born in the USA, you know, to hear these really great wrestling acts come out to these really cool songs. It, it was so exciting at the time because uh, it was just so appropriate and, and so unique. But like you say, in that whole world of everyone gets a trophy, when everyone ends up having an entrance theme, it's not as exciting as it used to be. No, I remember distinctly in 1980 watching World League Wrestling, and the Freebirds came out to Leonard Skinner's Freebird, and mm-hmm. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I hadn't even thought of someone coming out to music. Wow, and, you know, <laughs> Michael Hayes, what an innovator. And before anyone says it, yes, I know Gorgeous George used to come out to music, but it was the first time I had seen it, and it had been a long time since it had been done. Then the Freebirds came to Georgia. We heard Entrance Music in Georgia. Georgia. Not everyone had it. And then when the WWF finally had Sergeant Slaughter come out to something, oh, and, and world class, the Von Erichs were coming out to music, and so were the Freebirds. And they were the only ones. Garvin didn't come out to music. Chris Adams didn't have music, just the Freebirds and the Von Erichs. And that kept it special. And then when the WWF finally started using it, I was like, wow, they, they're, they're finally catching up. And then by the end of 1984, I'm like, it doesn't matter. Everyone has it. Yeah, and and the cool thing about this period that we're discussing, like 83, 84, 85, you're actually hearing, you know, the stars come out to these mainstream songs that you would hear on the radio. You know, by the time we would get to 87, 88, 89, and beyond, you know, Jim Johnson or whoever was doing it behind the scenes at Titan Sports, they were doing these kind of generic hero themes or entrance themes like Jim Duggan would have one and and his wasn't really that different than Bam Bam Bigelow's. They were all this kind of upbeat uh, theme uh, which was great but it wasn't the same as the good old days of hey let's steal uh, the Alan Parsons project and give it to Ricky Steamboat. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, you know, now it's funny, uh, you know, I say in 83, Sergeant Slaughter comes out to, you know, music, and I'm all happy that the WWF is finally getting caught up with the times. And, you know, two years later, I'm like, this sucks. I hate it. <laughs> I, I actually missed the days when no one in the WWF came out to, to theme music. But anyway... Steve, let's talk about a big happening. We mentioned it on the last show, but a really big happening. I heard about the passing of the Grand Wizard. One of my friends said that, you know, hey, I heard the Grand Wizard died. And I, you know, 40 years ago, I was 18 years old, and I just knew I had learned a long time ago, don't believe everything that you hear. Right. And I kind of took it with a grain of salt, and then they, they mentioned it on TV. And how did you hear about it, Steve? Well, I, I think I heard about it the way you did, not the rumor, but uh, when that episode of uh, Championship Wrestling um, aired, uh, well, for me, it was midnight on WOR. Vince and Patterson ran through what was going to happen on the show. And when they were done kind of telling you who was going to be on the show, they said, oh, and uh, we, you know, we must let you know that uh, a very important figure, uh, you know, the Grand Wizard has passed away. And, and, they, and they just talked briefly about him and they did show you know, an image of him on the screen. And they said, you know, he was such an important part of wrestling. And then they went to the promo for the MSG show. But, but yeah, it was just definitely, um, 
uh, a really, um, uh, you know, sad moment for me. I mean, uh, I, I, I liked all three of the managers and, you know, Albano and Blassi being the other two. And they, they all played such an essential role in those days of WWF to WWF. And they all uh, were so essential in getting the heels over, had so much personality. And, and the Wizard uh, really seemed um, in a key spot because they gave him a lot of the top contenders to go against Backlund and Bruno before him, um, I was just really sad about it. I, I just felt like uh, you know the wrestling that I grew up on will never be the same. Uh, it, you know, wrestling will continue, obviously, but uh, he was such a key part of it. It was just sad to lose him. It really was, and I can't emphasize enough for those who who didn't live through that era. Albano, Blassie, and the Grand Wizard were the anchors of the promotion. They were. Uh, as was Vince McMahon, everyone else came and went. Literally everyone else came and went, but those four people were there every week. And when when Wizard passed away, I mean, you know, first you're, you're devastated. You, you realize that, you know, nothing's going to be the same for you as a wrestling fan. And I kind of wondered, okay, you know, are they going to bring someone in to replace him? And that's going to be weird because we were used to those three guys. And little little did I realize at the time, that, you know, that the Grand Wizard, you know, his passing, it was a big deal, but everything was going, going to be changing radically very soon. And like I said, we're at the, the very end of that Pedro Bruno Backland era. It was the only thing we knew, and this is the end of it. I'm bumming everyone out. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> well, true, though. Well, it was, um, you know, it, it's been interesting to learn in in the subsequent decades past that uh, he was a very essential part of uh, Titan Sports and the company before, Cap- more, more so Capital Wrestling Corporation, because he... Uh, uh, back around 1971, he was actually the the Boston promoter put there by Vince McMahon when uh, Vince McMahon, the, the elder, decided to run shows in Boston. He and uh, his partner, Bobby Harmon, were uh, running those Boston shows for a little while before, uh, uh, I don't know, it was Abe Ford or Ford. Or Abe who, Ford. Yeah, he took over after that. But but he had also been uh, done the bookkeeping and done different things for uh, uh, Vince C and had a home in Fort Lauderdale, like apparently close to where Vince Sr. was. So it was definitely a very uh, sad time for anyone at the World Wrestling Federation. It really was. And I mean, it's, it's hard when wrestling has to deal with a real tragedy. I mean, here's a guy who had been just this, this very evil, very crass <laughs> person who normalized. You would turn on TV and you would see this guy with sunglasses and a turban, okay? <laughs> and after a while, you didn't even blink when you saw this, this bizarre, this guy with this bizarre appearance. Steve, I, I've mentioned this on the show before. 25-ish years ago, someone, a friend of mine asked me, hey, uh, my the law firm I work with represents a, a steroid manufacturer that superstar Billy Graham was suing, and we have his deposition. You want a copy of it? <laughs> well, sure. I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say no to something like that. 
and I'm, I'm such an idiot, Steve. I did not take care of this thing, and I eventually threw it out. Mm-hmm. It had so much fascinating material in there, and one of the things that was in there was superstar Billy Graham swearing up and down that, A, the Grand Wizard of Wrestling died from a drug overdose, which he's listed as a heart attack, but that's what a drug, drug overdose is. And number two, he went on and on about how it was caused by drugs supplied by Dr. George Saharian. Hmm, that is interesting. I've never heard that story before, but it certainly could be true. I I mean, I have no idea, but Graham said it was true. But anyway, yeah, so, I mean, like I said, I was wondering, you know, are they going to bring in Bobby Heenan? Are they going to bring in Sir Oliver Humperdinck? You know, who would make sense here? Mm -hmm. And it turns out they're just going to bring in everyone. Don't worry about it. (laughs) They they really did. (laughs) All right. So for review purposes, let's hear from Bob Backlund. He had a match in Philadelphia. This is his uh, post-match interview. Cal Rudman here with a champ, Mr. Champ, Bob Backlund, you did it. The stretcher match, you defeated that gentleman. And here with his manager, Arnold Skolan, it was the chicken wing that did it. What happened, Bob? Oh, that chicken wing's been uh, one of Arnie and I's bread and butter. And I want to thank Mr. Skolan. You know, he's the greatest manager a wrestler ever could have. And I put my hand out to him any time, and he's done a lot of good to me. And then those people out there, all those friends out there. Boy, that means a lot when they're fired up and they're behind you because this was a big one. It's sweet victory tonight. And, you know, there's some very special people out there at the Hessian House over in New Jersey and at the Evergreen House. Special kids that I visited. And I know they're out there. They're right behind me. And, boy, it's a beautiful feeling to know you've got a lot of friends. And, uh, Mr. Rudman. Well, whatever they say about you, I don't want to interrupt you, but whatever they say about you, one thing we know about you, and we all feel this way in the World Wrestling Federation, you do look out for the little guy. You've been champ a long time, but they can say anything they want about you, but I want it said right here on television. Is that right, Arnold Scullin? He looks out for the little guy. That's true. He's not only a champ inside the ring, he's a champ outside the ring. Handicapped kids, wherever it is that he can help. Right. Now, with the chicken wing, what, you cut off the artery. What At first, it cut well, off the shoulder. What happened? First, there's a heck of a lot of pressure put yeah. on that shoulder. Yes. Because you get that arm and right. that chicken wing. And then you cross face, and you get that pressure against the artery supplying the blood to the vein. And yeah, it's the potential of putting somebody to sleep and putting them out. And, uh, you know, I don't want to you know, I don't want to do it for too long. But yes. uh, I want to do it long enough so I can win. Yes. Why did you have to hit him on the head? Because the match was over, Cal, and, and he was the winner, and he attacked Bob from behind, and uh, he got in the Cobra clutch there, and I didn't want to see anything happen, so I, the referee couldn't uh, make him break it, so I made him break it the hard way. We also, and I just wanted you to say it, congratulations again, champ, that's the word, champ. We'll be right back. Okay, real quick, we on our Facebook group, another reason you should join is because we took questions on the WWF from the fall of 1983, and we haven't gotten around to those, but you have not asked those questions in vain, STW Universe. We are going to be answering them next week, so we have not forgotten. Secondly, I know I bag on Bob Backlund's interviews a lot. That was a good interview. That's a good Bob Backlund interview where, you know, he just keeps, he's the a straight man he's the uh, a gentleman a champion someone to look to look up to and pretty soon you know we're gonna have a champion who's like yo what's the whole brother <laughs> he's like yelling all the time and bob does an interview the the same way that a joe montana or a reggie jackson would do an interview and i i think that's a good thing 
No, I I would agree. That was a good interview by Backland Standards for sure. I mean, when he talked about the chicken wing hold, it was kind of like, uh, you know, the way maybe Mariano Rivera would be talking about using the cutter. You know, you're using this one one maneuver that gets you to victory every time. And he, he referenced Skolin being a good manager. And it was definitely a, a very sports-like interview. And I will say about that particular match, which was a Sicilian stretcher match, it was kind of a... A comical ending to the match. I mean, usually in a stretcher match, is going back to the uh, Andre versus Killer Khan series. Uh, that that match would would just continue and continue until the person was finally you know taken out on a stretcher and Khan fought his way off the stretcher and kept coming at Andre even though he seemed defeated. In this match, they just basically put a slaughter on the stretcher and then the two referees just dumped him out of the ring, which was kind of comical. But after that, slaughter uh, came in, got behind Backlund, put him in the Cobra clutch, and then then uh, Skolin came in with the belt, hit. Uh, slaughter on top of the head with the belt and that broke it up and then that was the end of the match but it was it was an interesting and well executed ending to the match we all quickly learned as wrestling fans wwf fans that there's only one ending to the stretcher match and it's that one the heel jumps off the stretcher a second too late there's only one ending to a chain slash strap match there's only one (laughs) ending to a heel winning the cage a cage match it's the same same thing every time but let's talk about uh wwf at landover this is one of their biggest arenas uh let me see andre the giant defeats sergeant slaughter mass superstar over chief j strongbow whose career is coming to a rather sad end, in my opinion. Rocky Johnson defeats Afa. Uh, let me see. Morocco defeats Snuka via disqualification in a Fijian strap match. Well, I guess there's more than one finish to it, to that. <laughs> and the rest of it is squashes. Um, Steve, I mean, you know, Andre the Giant versus Sergeant Slaughter, an interesting main event. I have always said that the WWF should have emphasized Sergeant Slaughter as a huge guy, which he was, and feuded him with Andre. Yeah, they never really did that. And uh, and as we, we've talked about recently, uh, in this period where Slaughter's kind of in between the 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 heat of the end of his heel run and getting ready to turn babyface, he's just kind of stuck in the middle here. And some of his matches, he's kind of being kind of comical. He's uh, like when he was facing Tony Atlas, he tried to give a muscle pose to show his body. And, uh, you know, he, he just, he wasn't trying to be the old imposing uh, Gomer with the big jaw and the, and the riding whip. He was just being more of a mellow guy, but yeah, um, he would have definitely been able to hold his own against Andre, but here it just seems that uh, slaughter is just kind of, uh, you know, biding his time until he gets his big push and goes against the Iron Sheik. I, you know what? I don't even know if they knew they were tur- turning Slaughter, Sergeant Slaughter. They, they probably did, but who knows? But speaking of Sergeant Slaughter, for review purposes, let's hear him on Buddy Rogers' Corner. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week is none other than one of the greatest wrestlers in the World Wrestling Federation today, Sergeant Slaughter. Before I go any further, I'd like to speak about the Victory Magazine, the most highly touted wrestling magazine in the world today. On the front cover is none other than your friend and my friend, Jimmy Snuka. And on the back, my guest, Sergeant Slaughter. And in the center, ladies and gentlemen, 
I would like to say there's a display of some beautiful photos of Sergeant Slaughter throughout the center fold. Maybe we can get a shot of that here. Ladies and gentlemen, I just can't help it right at this present moment. I am highly, highly disturbed as to what happened to Eddie Gilbert. And believe me, I'm sure everybody in this crowd, including my guest, must feel very bad about Eddie and what happened to him. Sarge, in this particular case, just how do you feel about this? Well, you know, it just reminds me of some young punk private that thought he was better than the sergeant. So you went into the ring and you found out who the better man was. Well, let me tell you, Eddie Gilbert, they can take your picture out of that magazine now and start putting your picture and your name in an obituary because you might never wake up, boy. And that goes for you, Backlund. If you would have been out there, I'd have loved to see it happen to you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I know I shouldn't have done that, but we will go back to ringside wrestling. Thank you. I should have mentioned beforehand that this was right after Mass Superstar uh, gave Eddie Gilbert a corkscrew neckbreaker outside the ring, and Eddie was on a stretcher, and his mentor, Bob Backlund, was out there, you know, being very concerned. Uh, I mean, Sergeant Slaughter, you know, he's he was great at what he did, Steve. Oh, he, he was. Uh, you know, he it really had been one of uh, Backlund's best challengers, and I, I was happy to see him eventually go to get the babyface turn. Uh, I mean, as, as we would see in the future, all these uh, appearances, the, the fans just really took to him as a good guy, and uh, his popularity really rivaled Hogan's in that, that first year of 84, and um, Hogan hadn't really gotten any big uh, traction yet with any big feuds. He was just like kind of wrestling different people and keeping busy. But but yeah, Slaughter was definitely uh, extremely popular in 84. He definitely was. I mean, the first part of the year right after the turn, uh, I mean, clearly he was the number two babyface behind Hogan. He uh, was main eventing uh, Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, etc., so, I mean, more on that, but I mean, Slaughter is still, he's kind of wrapping up his series against Bob Backlund. Uh, Philadelphia, October 22nd, 1983, we talked about it a little bit, where the main event was Bob Backlund against Sergeant Slaughter in a stretcher match, and then they also had Morocco and Snuka in a Fijian strap match, where, let me see, the champion took the strap off Snuka's hand and began whipping Snuka with it. Behind the referee's back, Snooker was disqualified for being caught not wearing the strap. Ah, a travesty of justice, Steve. (laughs) Yeah, I I watched that match, and uh, it was was kind of funny. Uh, uh, Morocco had gained the upper hand, and when the referee's back was turned, he just took the... uh, cuff of the uh of the link off of uh snooka and then the referee all of a sudden comes over and he sees that there's no uh fijian strap on snooka's hand and he rings the bell and uh but it was yet another unique way to kind of keep that feud going and to keep the belt on morocco without him actually having to lose so uh definitely it kept that feud alive for a few more months 
Yeah, the the idea was that, you know, they weren't going to put the title on Snooker, but at the same time, Snooker never had to do a real job. Now, one thing I noticed on that Buddy Rogers corner is that they're pushing Victory Magazine pretty hard. And I think Vince McMahon must have come up with an idea. Instead of pushing it on Buddy Rogers' corner, why not give the magazine its own segment? So let's hear from Chief J. Strongbow on Victory Corner. We would like, ladies and gentlemen, to take you to Victory Corner. Before we do, we'd like to state to the views expressed in Victory Corner by Associate Publisher Robert DeBoer, those of his views and his magazine, and not necessarily those of the views of us here on Championship Wrestling or the station. So with that in mind, I'd like to take you now to Associate Publisher Robert DeBoer and Company. Thank you very much, and welcome to Victory Corner. This week's special guest, is Chief J. Strongbow, one of the World Wrestling Federation's more enduring uh, professional wrestlers. We're delighted to have him with us this week, and we would like to talk about a recent article that appeared in Victory Magazine. Chief, the article in this week's Victory Magazine talked in great length about your enduring qualities, how you've always managed to take the high road in professional wrestling and represent the finest things of the sport. Would you care to share with our readers in a little bit more detail what you feel in that article well, first of all uh, Robert I'd like to thank you and Victory Magazine for having me out here and as far pleasure. as as far as enduring I think it's the fans out there that really push me on and on and on uh, I felt at times that it's ready to say put the stuff up put put your headdress up put it up and and uh, it's just hard to do it's just when the, when the folks out there just keep make me feel like I do I just want to go on and on and on well in this sport uh, particularly in the position that you're in you're oftentimes uh, pitted against some of the more uh, hardened elements in the in the business how are you able to endure that much abuse both both physical mental and mental it's hard it's hard but they feel like Chief J Strong was something to shoot at and if they get by him they got uh, a long grassy road ahead of them why do you feel you are always the target? I feel that uh, the people relate with me. They know how I feel. They know that I'm sincere. They know that I love them. And uh, I think the wrestlers kind of feel that way, that, that they get through Chief J. Strongwell, that they can go on. Thank you very much. Now back to ringside. In my opinion, the very best part of that segment was Vince McMahon reading that disclaimer about Robert DeBoard. Because <laughs> you you look you listen to that guy and you see him and you're like, this guy's a loose cannon, man. You better watch out for him. Wow. What, what I would have liked to have seen there or heard from Jay Strongbow as far as his answer about, uh, you know, to talking to Robert DeBoard, and he should have just said, well, you know, Robert, uh, thank you for putting on Victory Magazine, because unlike uh, Bill After's magazines, you do not have apartment house wrestling in these magazines. <laughs> I, I, I think I've told this story. I'm almost positive I've told this story on the show before. I met Bill After uh, the night, May 29th, 1984, okay. uh, before the Meadowlands show in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And he asked us, what do you like about the magazine? What don't you like about the magazines? I told him, I said, the, what I like is that you got rid of the apartment wrestling. Really? I, I, I mean, straight out. I just told him that. I'm like, that was a good move. You know, I always found it a little bit embarrassing. Kind of and, you know, 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I look, I mean, I, who would want to have, I don't know, your friend or God forbid your girlfriend start going through your stuff and seeing that you have a magazines with apartment wrestling. She'll dump you on the spot. <laughs> well, the reason I mentioned that Strombo in that was apparently, and I think this might be an after his book, uh, Apparently, back in the early 70s or maybe later 70s, since that's when the apartment house wrestling started, I guess he he blew, he blew a gasket from what I heard that he saw that his image was in the magazine with the, these girls scantily clad. And I think he told uh, after, like, hey, if you want to use my image, uh, don't put me in the magazine with that stuff. And uh, Who said this after? Strong, Strongbow did. Oh, wow. Yeah, and and I think uh, I think the, the elder Vince also felt the same way. Like you shouldn't be like mixing that kind of stuff in with the wrestling. I even though the kids couldn't come to the garden. I mean, maybe kids could come to the other markets. I'm sure they could. Uh, they wanted their show to be conceived as a family show, not like a adult only show or whatever. Yeah, you know. No, I could totally see that, and it wasn't in every magazine. It was actually probably in about 20 to 25 percent of the magazines, but still, I mean, I bought all of the magazines, and, you know, honestly, I just, you know, went past the apartment wrestling. I mean, geez, you know, if you want porn, go out and get porn. I, I, well, I was just a young kid at the time, you know, and I, I was such a geek. Like that that issue of Sports Review that had uh, Bruno versus Koloff and the chain match from Boston. And in that same issue, like half the cover was like two girls in bikinis, like, you know, getting it done. And, and I was thinking to myself as a kid, I just wanted one more wrestling article. I don't want to see these bikini girls. <laughs> Yes, that was me, totally. <laughs> Just give me another article about wrestling. More pictures of, of men in trunks as opposed to models in their underwear. That, it makes no sense, but here we are. What was wrong with us, John? Gee, we were a couple of geeks. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, I mean, what's changed? We're doing a show about, the, about 40 years ago from pro wrestling. But anyway... <laughs> All right, we have some more audio for you for review purposes, of course. Let's hear from Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas. Rocky Johnson, I like to ask I you. I want to tell you one thing, Fat Fans. We prove to people one thing for all that we know that we can be the Samoans. We're not going to take anything from them. You see what happened? They rough and they tough and they want to get down. But, brother, if they want to get down, we can get down too if we have to. We want one more match. Well, we want one without a disqualification where everything goes and we'll find out who the real champions are. Do you know, Tony, I have the feeling that the Samoans were a little bit afraid of you two this Make week. Me no, never man. If they want to get down and get funky, to me that Rocket Joseph, I'm definitely the people that they show pick off. Ain't nobody. Gonna jump on me and rock it and beat us like dogs. Beat us like that. You ain't gonna do it. Ain't no way we gonna let you get away with it. If we ever get you in that ring again, we gonna fight you like dogs. We gonna get down and get funky like you ain't never seen a baseball. You feel very confident. That is it. I feel confident because I got confidence in myself. And I got confidence in my partner. But I'll say this, there ain't a rougher team than a Samoan because they're rough, they're tough, they'll do anything in their power to win. But damn it, so will we! Oh, 
all. They're angry, they're ready. They want a championship match with no disqualification. Let's see if they'll get it. We'll be right back. Steve, I heard a long time ago, we're going back at least 35 years, that everyone liked Tony Atlas. Everyone, you know, everyone liked him. He was one of those guys. He was like a, I mean, not literally everyone, but, you know, he was like a, a Bobby Eaton type guy. He mm-hmm. had very few enemies. And then I heard that Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson didn't get along. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense if everyone liked Tony. And then... Maybe a year later, I started hearing the Rocky Johnson stories, and Rocky was, I liked him as a a wrestling fan, but he was not exactly universally beloved behind the scenes. Well, I I mean, uh, the thing I've heard was that uh, Rocky Johnson was more on the professional side, and that Tony was... uh, made some bad choices, maybe showed up late sometimes. And, uh, and because they couldn't kind of get in sync with each other, uh, that's why their partnership kind of went abrupt earlier than you would have thought. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they kind of won the tag team titles out of nowhere. And I was really surprised when they won the tag team titles because both Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson were major stars. Usually the babyface tag team was, you know, Dino Bravo, a big star and Dom DiNucci, a guy at the end of his career or Chief J Strongbow, big star, Jules Strongbow, who is he? (laughs) Um, you know, but I mean, I I was really taken aback. But like I said, I mean, I was, you know, a little bit bummed out. Then, like I say, over the last 35 or so years, you know, you just keep hearing Rocky Johnson stories. And, you know, I mean, it, what he it, Tony Atlas wasn't the only guy he didn't get along with. But let's talk about a TV taping that took place on October 25th, 1983. Uh, Bob Backlund defeats Mr. Spooji in a non-title match with the cross-faced chicken wing. And then we have a... a a segment where they discuss the passing of the Grand Wizard. We have Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas teaming up. And then a story that became, didn't start off as a big story, but it turned into one. Iron Sheik returns to the WWF after a four-year absence, more like three and a half years. He used to be called Hussein Arab or the Great Hussein Arab. Now he's the Iron Sheik, managed by Fred Blassie, uh, defeating Rudy Diamond. Steve, I mean, I'll be honest, you know, we'll talk more about this next week and in the future. I mean, Iron Sheik struck me as a guy who had no chance of winning the WWF championship. He was like a, a literally like a killer con level challenger to me. He just he wasn't a Morocco or a Valentine. Yeah, when you look back on on it now, I mean, uh, if you look at the earlier part of the Backland reign, uh, Hussein Arab uh, gave back on some tremendous matches, just like, say, Mr. Saida would. But they were both kind of uh, impressive guys who could give back on a great match, but they weren't like that uh, Morocco, Slaughter, Valentine that you thought, Patera, that you thought would take home the title. But uh, little did we know that Vince was about to throw us a curveball here. Yeah, I mean, some of Bob Backlund's opponents really had that big fight feel. Like like you mentioned, Ken Patera, like Greg Valentine. Iron Sheik, I figured was, was going to be, okay, he's going to be another one and done for Bob Backlund. It turned out that not, not to be the case. Speaking of Chief J. Strongbow's sad ending, the next night, uh, 
on for All-Star Wrestling, Chief J. Strongbow fights Tiger Chung Lee to a 10-minute draw. <laughs> and then November 5th, 1983, the Iron Sheik defeats Chief J. Strongbow at the 22-second mark. And I was there. and It was the old, you know, Strongbow turns his back, Sheik jumps him and gets the pin right away. I mean, we'll talk more about this. Strongbow's probably got about another eight months left in his career, and it's kind of a, a not a very happy ending. Well, I mean, we we had seen it all. I mean, he had come in. Uh, I mean, when you and I started watching wrestling in '76, he was a big, big deal coming in, returning. Uh, uh, you know, after being away for a little while, he came back in '76, and uh, he was probably. Um, you know, uh, there was no Intercontinental Championship in 76, but he was probably the most popular wrestler uh, aside from Bruno, who was never on TV other than the promos for the big shows. Uh, and then, um, you know, Strombo had a great feud with Valentine uh, in 79. And after that, you know, he was starting to look older. Uh, they, they gave him that second run uh, with the other Strongbow in 82. Uh, but, I mean, they had done everything they could with him. I mean, as you say, father time always wins. I mean, Putski also was looking a little long in the tooth by this time. Uh, his push... Uh, is not as is remarkably lower than as as Strongbow's would be, but his push is also uh, um, lightened up a bit. And um, you know, as you as eighty four would come on, you could see he's starting to do some jobs for Piper, and he would no longer be at the top of the cards like he used to be. No, uh, Strongbow and Patterson were both doing jobs on TV in 1984, which, you know, at, at the time kind of bummed me out. It was like, you know, that, that old ball player who couldn't play anymore, and he was the, the only one who didn't know. And now for review purposes, let's go to some more audio. Buddy Rogers Corner with the Masked Superstar and the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. Incredible Masked Superstar and his manager... Manager of champions, better known as the Wiz. I guess you know on the front of the magazine this week, you're featured on the front cover. And there's one thing I would like to say. When I use the word incredible, I will say this. You have an, an incredible ability. Incredible conditioning. There's no doubt in anyone's mind that you're not one of the best wrestlers they've ever seen. Well, that's up to you. Outside of being world champion, I'd say you've covered it all. But why would you do such a dastardly thing as you did to Eddie Gilbert? I just can't believe me. Inside, I'm a little choked up right now. I just can't believe anyone would do that to a fine person like Eddie. Listen, let me tell you and let me tell this Bob back out here. I guess I'm supposed to be intimidated or impressed by him going out and doing this exercise for now. Well, I'm not, Backlund. And as far as the Eddie Gilbert incident, people say, don't you feel a little depressed? Don't you have any remorse? Aren't you sorry for what you did to poor little Eddie Gilbert? And people, I am sorry. But I'm sorry that I didn't do it to somebody more significant. I'm sorry I didn't get the opportunity to do it to Mr. Backlund, somebody who means something. Eddie Gilbert is a nobody. I have come here, and you are very astute. You're a very intelligent individual. 
I recognize that. And when you say somebody's incredible, when you say somebody's great, when you say somebody's a superstar and fantastic, hey, who's going to fight it? Who's going to doubt it? I am. I didn't give this name to myself. The people did. They saw my ability. They saw my training. They recognized my intelligence. What can I say? Can I not accept the name? Can I not accept the prestige? Can I not accept the money? Can I not accept the challenge? I'm here because I am great. I've trained 10 long, hard years for one goal. One championship has eluded me. That championship is not going to pass me by. I have no intention, none whatsoever, of coming here and losing that golden opportunity. This gentleman here promised me he'd get me the opportunity. All I had to do was prove myself, and I've done that. Everybody recognizes it. I recognize it. And you know something? Bob Backlund, you can go out there and do that exercise for two hours or four hours. I'm not coming after your stomach. I'm coming after your whole body, your neck, your arms. So do your exercises. And Rogers, we did send Eddie Gilbert a card in the hospital. Stay sick. Well, coming from you, and I'd expect that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's go back to ringside wrestling. Stay sick. I am definitely naming this episode of Stick to Wrestling after that. And we, we're all sad because this guy died. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Buddy Rogers is 63 here. And I'm saying this. He, I'm sorry. He's 60. No, he's 63. And I'm saying this respectfully. He's getting older. Older people, they have good days and sometimes they have bad days. This was kind of a bad day for Buddy Rogers. Well, it was really uh, a very impressive interview from Mass Superstar, and um, you know, I, I've, I've actually met Bill Eady, uh once or twice and uh, talked to him, and he is one of the most humble, nicest guys, maybe one of the nicest guys in the wrestling business. Uh, and, and what he did on this interview was a complete act because uh, he's not a uh, mean, menacing guy, but in the interview, he certainly sounded like that. I don't know if he had great acting classes in college or what, but uh, he sounded menacing. He sounded strong. He's, a, he's really a good heel, that's for sure. I think maybe being a good guy, a good guy in real life helps you be a heel. The best heel I have ever seen in anything okay, was Anton Shagir in No Country for Old Men. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was scary. Mm -hmm. And in real life, the guy is this complete pacifist. He didn't know if he wanted to do the role. And he was so convincing in that movie. And I'm starting to think that now, like the nicest guys make the best heels in wrestling and on television. And and by the way, I've been around plenty of baby-faced wrestlers who are absolute jerks in real life, so <laughs> giving my theory more cred cred credibility. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it just shows you how vers versatile these guys can be, and definitely uh, don't uh, you know judge them because you don't know what they're really like. 
Exactly. I mean, you know, in a way, wrestlers, you know, the part of it is acting. Let's be honest. You know, you have to go out there and perform and make people want to buy tickets. And that's exactly what Bill Eady did. So good interview. Let's talk a little bit more about the uh, direction the WWF is going in. November 5th, they're in Los Angeles. November 6th, they're in San Diego. And November 7th, they make their debut in San Jose. Steve, I, I've if I am... Uh, What's his name? The poor. Why is it the Don Owen? Thank you. I, I don't know why I couldn't think of his name. If I'm Don Owen, I'm sitting there going, "Okay, these guys are almost definitely coming to Portland and Seattle, maybe Vancouver." If I'm Vern Gagne, I'm like, "These guys have to be looking at Denver and Salt Lake City, wherever else." I mean, this this national expansion. You know, I didn't know it was coming at the time, but you got if you're. If you're aware of this, you've got it. You have to know that Vince has his uh, his eyes on the entire United States. Yeah, and I think the only reason he didn't go to Portland, I think there's some really uh, difficult uh, taxes up there, or paying extra. Well, the fees. commission's imp- impossible, or that's was it. impossible. That that that's it. Uh, so they they stayed away from there for uh, the longest time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you're seeing these these major cities like San Diego, San Jose, Los Angeles, and these these early early cards are so interesting because you have matchups you're not going to see anywhere else in the country. Um, like um, in the L.A., uh, Masters defeated Sergeant Slaughter, which is really weird. In San Diego, Masters defeated Ivan Koloff, uh, an old IWA match there. There you go. <laughs> and, I mean, and then you've got guys like Alexei Smirnoff there. Uh, I know none on these particular ones, but Adonis had been wrestling for them on the West Coast earlier in the year. So they're really uh, you know, making their, their impact known on the West Coast. And, and kind of like I said earlier about uh, WWF's four-way in the Cincinnati and Akron, you know, Hogan was going to end up showing up on these shows in January, February, March. They may not have sold out the first time he came, but after two or three shows and he's on them and his, his legend is getting bigger and bigger and he's getting to be more of a mainstream star pretty soon. All those shows are going to be sellouts because he's on it and, uh, and the WWF machine and the WWF logo and the, the meaning of it uh, really is, gets to be so uh, mainstream and so well-known that these shows have to sell out because all the kids and families want to go to these shows. Yeah, it was definitely a change from the pro wrestling that, you know, we're we're seeing the end of now. And like I said, it's a little bit different. You know, you're putting the guys on an airplane and you're sending them across the country. This isn't like, you know, okay, we're already running Pittsburgh and Cleveland's not that far a drive from Pittsburgh or, you know, Akron's not that far from Cleveland. Let's do that. You know, instead, this is something totally different. But anyway, let's hear some more audio. Uh, we've got Buddy Rogers Corner with Captain Lou Albano and Iron Mike Sharp. Things get a little bit crazy here. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This week, my guest is Iron Mike Sharp. And with him, he has his manager, Lou Albano. I understand there's some things that they're a little disturbed about, and I believe Lou Albano would like to bring it out first. Well, Buddy Rogers, aren't you yourself highly impressed 
about the achievements of this man. He was more or less a sleeper, and now he is right at the threshold of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Championship. Aren't you highly impressed? Be honest. Well, yes, I am impressed to a degree, but I'd like to know what he's got to say. You know, Mr. Rogers, you know, I know you're a man of distinction, and you have a great background in professional wrestling. You're very famous and everything. And I have made a promise to myself, I'm not going to let the fans or an individual such as you disturb me. I am more class, I am more posed than that. I am not going to let these people get to me. I am undefeated. Well, it seems, listen, I hate the... I am not a whip, and I don't want to hear that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it seems like we got to go back to ringside wrestling. I'm sorry. I've said it on the show before. If you're hearing a chant on television, it's always way more impressive if you're there live. And if, if Iron Mike Sharp is getting that kind of reaction... Steve, why are not, why are they not giving him a better push? He got the guy had legitimate heat. Yeah, yeah, I I just think that I just think that they just pegged him as, you know, not a guy that had the charisma or the relatability with the fans. I mean, like when you watch Morocco do an interview, uh, he's really magnetic and he kind of comes right to the screen at you. With Sharp, he's just like lots of like loud noise and uh, but. Uh, yeah, they could, they could have done more with him, that's for sure. I mean, they, they could have done more with him than just kind of eventually move him down the card. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying you'll replace, you know, Ric Flair with him, but, I mean, he, if he's getting that kind of reaction, there's there's got to be something under the hood there. I mean, <laughs> and they just, you know, they just had one, I think he got one match in a major arena against Bob Backlund. That was at the uh, Philadelphia Spectrum, and that was it. No Madison Square Garden, no Boston Garden, etc. But, anyway, I'll tell you what, let's have a little, now, I believe that was the last Buddy Rogers corner ever. It's the last one that I have. And Buddy just disappeared for from TV with no explanation. And now it's been replaced by Victory Corner. The WWF magazine has its own segment. Let's hear from Captain Lou Albano. Thank you very much, and welcome to Victory Corner. This week's special guest is Captain Lou Albano, one of the World Wrestling Federation's more colorful and controversial managers. This week we'd like to explore an article that recently appeared in the collector's first edition entitled, Where Did Captain Lou Albano Go Wrong? Well, first of all, I'd like to compliment Victory Magazine on its choice of Captain Lou Albano, the maker of 14 tag team champions, on its selection. But I do believe that the article is a fallacy. There are lies in that article. Yes, my mom was a concert pianist. Yes, my dad was a physician. Yes, my brothers were, are all in education. And yet they singled out the captain as a black sheep. Why? I believe that this was all planned against the captain and against my will. Captain, I do not believe in these articles. Captain, that's the question I think that's on the minds of most of our fans. Where did you go wrong? The article points out that you come from a background of culture and education. Why have you taken the path that is more closely associated with the Black Prince or Machiavelli? It is merely, merely in your view. I believe that I am a Marconi, I am an Italian-American, I am a, a uh, Christopher Columbus, I am an American's Vespucci, I am a creative Italian. I believe that I am the maker of 14 tag team champions, and I am Captain Lou Albano. All lies and victory. Look at the next issue, and perhaps you'll find out the truth about Captain Lou Albano. 
Well, Captain, it's still a puzzlement to all of us who have read the article. Your background would indicate a, a different direction taken by you from the rest of your family. My good man, merely in your view. Anyone that knows the captain, knows the captain's family background, and knows the brilliance and what the captain is capable of doing, will realize that the captain is a proud Italian-American, a strategist, a brilliant strategist, and a genius in his own right. How would you explain, then, the, um, the fact that all through your professional career, as a professional wrestler, you always took the low road? Why do you continue to take that path now as a manager? Well, you see, my good man, speaking to someone like you who does not know wrestling, uh, you'd have to save a low road. That is merely your opinion. May I add out there that many, many, many a fan admire, respect, and love the captain. Victory Magazine has told lies about the captain. Look for the new issue of Victory Magazine, and perhaps you'll be enlightened about the captain and the captain's illustrious career. Thank you. Now back to ringside. Oh, man, two alternative titles to the show. Where did you go wrong? And why do you always take the low road? What the hell? <laughs> I think it's safe to say Robert DeBoard has the brain of a dehydrated BB. <laughs> I mean, wow. And, and DeBoard, I'm sure he's a really nice guy. I'm not sure if he's still with us. I'm not saying anything bad about this guy. This guy's drier than a desert. My God. Yeah, he, he actually did pass away. He was living in Pensacola, Florida and died, uh, I think, roughly 15 years ago or so. Okay. Uh, and he was only, I think he was only 60 years old when he passed. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's kind of one of those uh, unanswered questions of wrestling. Who was Robert DeBoard? Why was he chosen to to have this unusual role on the wrestling show when he had zero personality. I mean, I mean, maybe that was part of it. Let's just have this bland guy that interviews the all the interesting wrestlers who have larger yeah. than life personalities. But God, he was a little too bland, I think. He was he was way too bland, in my opinion. All right, let's talk about what went on in Allentown, Pennsylvania, at the championship wrestling taping. Uh, this took place November fifteenth, nineteen eighty three. Uh, let me see. The Iron Sheik is demonstrating his Persian clubs and challenging any American athlete to exercise with those clubs. Little foreshadowing there. Uh, Eddie Gilbert returns. Bob Backlund and Eddie Gilbert defeat Rene Goulet and Bob Bradley. I thought Rene Goulet was one of the most boring wrestlers of all time. <laughs> and in a big upset, I thought, Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas defeat the Samoans uh, by disqualification in a non-title match when Afa attacked Rocky Johnson when he had the abdominal stretch applied to Sika. Then Johnson and Atlas challenged the Samoans to a no-DQ match. Making his WWF debut after being missing. I was wondering where he was. He disappeared from Georgia like February, March 1983, and I was waiting for him to show up somewhere in another promotion, but Paul Orndorff returns to pro wrestling. I know he toured Japan, and he was doing their West Coast tours, but he defeats Ken Jugan with the pile driver, and Fred Blassie was watching from ringside. Paul Orndorff was originally scheduled to be managed by the Grand Wizard, but Grand Wizard had passed away by then. Uh, let me see the Albano and the Samoans accept Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas's challenge. Uh, let me see. Mass Superstar defeats Denny Hill, who should come to the ring to, uh, to Wacky Sack with the <laughs> swinging neck breaker. And then Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson defeat the Samoans for the tag team titles when Alpha breaks, a, excuse me, when Albano accidentally breaks a chair over Alpha's head. 
Steve, uh, what were your thoughts on Atlas and Johnson winning the titles? I was shocked. No, I, I thought it was great at the time. Uh, you know, uh, we we had uh, <clears throat> we were tired of the Samoans. I mean, uh, it was time for a new team, a new dominant team to come in and uh, really take advantage, uh, take control of the federation. And, and a babyface team was due. You know, we needed a new babyface team. I thought that Atlas and Johnson would probably be around a lot longer than they did, but uh, they did have a, a decent run, and uh, and then it ended kind of abruptly. It did, and it, it you know they rarely defended the titles. I found this out years later, and you know their their reign as champions was was kind of nondescript. I mean, they they really peaked as soon as they as a team as soon as they won the belts. But but this this match where uh, the titles changed hands and uh, Alpha was leveled by Albano with a chair. Uh, that footage was played and replayed uh, mm-hmm. six, seven, eight months after this. So it it was very a very uh, important TV match. It was uh, replayed quite frequently. And now let's hear from the mass superstar on Victory Corner for review purposes. Thank you very much, and welcome to Victory Corner. This week's special guest is the Mass Superstar. Superstar, on behalf of the readers of Victory Magazine, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, the type of publicity and write-in news that we've been receiving from our readers. Uh, the question that keeps recurring over and over is uh, primarily centers around this infamous hole that you employ uh, called the neck breaker. You used it recently against Eddie Gilbert, and much to the consternation of most of our readers, um, uh, it had uh, severe effects on Eddie. Um, Most of the readers feel it's something that should be outlawed, and they've asked me to ask you why you use such a a wicked hold. The reason I use the neck breaker is because it's successful. And as far as the uh, fan response saying that it should be outlawed, there's a conspiracy going around. Anytime anybody is successful at anything, whether it be professional wrestling or education or business, there's a little bit of jealousy. They seem to want to be pulling everybody back instead of getting behind him and pushing him forward. So as far as the fans concerned, I'm not really worried about that. I've never been concerned about the fans in my career. The only thing I'm in professional wrestling for is to get ahead. Not at all costs, but to get ahead and succeed. That's the only reason, the only motive that drives me, to be successful. When you are successful, you get more money. And everybody realizes Money talks. Thank you very much. Now back to ringside. My friends and I would just mock that episode of Victory Corner where DeBoer just like, you know, yeah, so here's Mass Superstar. Mass Superstar talks for 30 seconds and then DeBoer just wraps it up. I mean, <laughs> I don't mean to make fun of the guy, but I mean, if we're, you know, 18 years old and laughing at this guy's lack of personality, something's wrong. Well, even though he was the publisher of the magazine, the other executives of the magazine told him, no follow-up questions, please. Yeah, really. So while we're having so much fun, let's once again go to Victory Corner with Sergeant Slaughter. Thank you very much, and welcome to Victory's Corner. This week's special guest is Sergeant Slaughter, a man well-known for his training techniques and a man whose brutal techniques of training have been transferred to the ring. Sarge, our readers want to know, Victory wants to know, do you really feel there's a place in the ring for the type of techniques you use? Well, for your information, Mr. Maggot announcer, 
What I do in the ring, I did in the Marine Corps. And it was for one reason. It was for the welfare of you. It was for the welfare of those mothers and fathers out there. It was for the welfare of this country. That what I did, I took Junior and made him a man in 12 weeks what Mama and Daddy couldn't do in 18 years. So what I do in the ring is not only for my benefit, but it's for the benefit of professional wrestling. I am a man's man. If you don't belong in that ring with Sergeant Slaughter, if you can't do the things that Sergeant Slaughter demands you to do, if you can't give Sergeant Slaughter a battle, you don't belong in that ring. Do you understand what I mean? So when you come in that ring, get ready to fight. And what I do in that ring, or what I did in the United States Marine Corps, is none of your business. Thank you very much. Now back to ringside. More dryness for Mr. DeBoard and another alternate title to this episode, Mr. Maggot Announcer. <laughs> well, Slaughter, Slaughter was so impressive and uh, a good interview. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was just good to have him back in the WWF. He wasn't really, uh, other than finishing up the Backland feud, he wasn't really being heavily utilized this time. But uh, that would change in a few months. Yes, he was. And Slaughter was really talking about some babyface stuff here. He was talking about his role uh, in the Marine Corps. That, that's right. And, uh, and, and you know, the, we are in the mid-'80s. This is a time when uh, Ronald Reagan was extremely popular, and he was really, uh, you know, USA, USA. And uh, Vince really tapped into that uh, with the WWF, with Hogan and Slaughter at the beginning. And uh uh, that that theme of patriotism would remain uh, a huge part of WWF for for years and decades, really. Yeah, I mean, we were about to come into a year where you know uh, Bruce Springsteen's "Born in the USA" was mm-hmm. a, a very popular song and album. It didn't exactly praise the United States if you listen to the song, but that's how people took it. Um, the Olympics were going to be in the Summer Olympics were going to be in Los Angeles and the Russia and the uh, Eastern Bloc countries were were boycotting it and you know there were some kind of bad feelings about Russia shooting down one of our commercial uh, planes so you know yeah they were really tapping into the whole patriotism thing yeah, and and that was quite different uh, than say the WWF of old, uh, where you had your ethnic heroes, you know, Bruno for the Italians and Putski for the Polish and Kola for the Russians. I mean, uh, you uh, were kind of going from that old school mentality of let's let's uh, um, give heroes for the uh, immigrant families to root for. Now uh, we're going national. Let's let's appeal to all Americans with all American heroes. Yeah, and you're right about, you know, you mentioned the WWF had its ethnic types. Like, uh, it had, you know, Ivan Putski represented the Polish people, Bruno Sammartino and, and Dominic Tanucci to some extent, you know, represented the Italians, you know, etc. I was hanging around with the late, great Brian Hildebrand, mm-hmm. and he was refereeing in Smoky Mountain and living right outside of Knoxville. He was living in Morristown, as a matter of fact, we were talking in his apartment, mm-hmm. and he's like, it's just way different down here. You know, we don't have people who are you know italian or puerto rican or irish or anything like that you ask them you know what we are and they're like oh yeah we're just southern 
It's right. different up, different in the Northeast. Yeah, it, it is a different world. Uh, I, I mean, um, you, you hear uh, about uh, you know Italian people like in uh, places like uh, Tennessee, and you know they, they, they have, the locals think it's so foreign or so different. You know, an Italian, it's so so unique. But you know, we just take it for granted since you know New York, Pennsylvania, those northeastern areas. There's so many different uh, groups of people. Uh, I guess you know here in the South, uh, they they just think North versus South, that type of thing. Yeah, I mean we all we all knew what each other what we all were up here in the Northeast. It was you know important enough to know. Whereas it's different in other si- parts of the country. All right, before we get to some of the arena shows taking place in late November 1983, let's get caught up with audio of Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson their interview at, right after they win the WWF Tag Team Championships. Yeah, more audio from review for review purposes. I believe both Atlas and Johnson were the first real persons of color to hold any kind of t- a title in the W. Oh, I'm wrong. Sonny King held the tag team title titles previously, but it'd been a long time. Yeah, uh, you could you could really hear uh, good fire in uh, Rocky Johnson's interview there. I mean, he's really getting the crowd pumped up, and uh, you know, both of their physiques are so outstanding. I mean, Rocky Johnson definitely was a much more uh, of a veteran wrestler than Tony Atlas was, but uh, two great physiques and uh, uh, definitely giving the WWF some diversity. Uh, I, I think that's really one thing that made them stand out as opposed to the AWA or uh, NWA, WCW later on. Um, the the uh, WWF was really a melting pot where Vince and his father before, they did like to give spots to uh, these ethnic stars uh, or in this case, African-American tag team. Uh, I think that was really important and uh, you know, if you're going national, I think it's really important to have a, a Hulk Hogan, you know, represent, you know, uh, the all-American look. You have Tito Santana represent the Latino look. You have JYD, and of course, this tag team represent the African-American look. It, it just, it's just good to have some somebody for every group and really, you know, somebody for everybody. It's really good to kind of appeal to everyone that way. You know, I always wondered, not to get too off topic, but like in 86, when JCP had exploded, was doing really well, I'm like, you know, why don't they bring in a Tony Atlas who is available? And I later learned that Tony was going through some personal issues, but I mean, it, it really stood out. Like, you know, the the NWA just was not diverse the way the WWF was. Yeah, I, I mean, Butch Reed would have been a great pickup for the NWA in 86. I mean, I know Vince brought him in in the fall of 86. But he was out there for a while. Uh, I think he was in Central States at one point. He could have been a major superstar in, in Crockett. But, you know, again, I hate to say it, but it, it felt like more of an old boys network. You know, if you weren't Dusty's crony or buddy, you were getting a job there. So, 
Well, I mean, the old joke that wasn't really a joke was that Dusty considered himself the uh, lead black baby face <laughs> in JCP with his blue-eyed soul and all that nonsense. Yeah, and, and, you know, it, I'm sure there was some truth to that, too. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I think, I mean, that's that's another reason that made the WWF look major league. Because look at look at our sports. I mean, if you look at baseball, you have, you know, Bo Jackson. You have these great athletes uh, of different uh, races. Uh, you know, you have to have representation. So, I mean, Bill Watts said it himself. I mean, the, the biggest... Uh, expose on wrestling of all was, you know, we have black athletes dominating every sport except for pro wrestling. So, I mean, that that was right in your face as far as, uh, you know, what's wrong with that picture? You know, I, I, I haven't had my old buddy Ricardo Coleman on the show in, in too long, but he and I did a show when we were talking about how Butch Reed really truly may have been a better choice than Ric Flair as NWA champion because, you know, you have Butch Reed out there. Who do you think is going to win in a fight, Butch Reed or Hulk Hogan? Probably Butch Reed. <laughs> I, w- I would be look watching TV thinking Butch Reed would splatter Hulk Hogan in a real fight. Uh, of course, you know, then we get to re- reliability issues where Ric Flair was incredibly reliable and Butch Reed was going through some stuff, but I didn't know that at the time. Let's talk a little bit Madison Square Garden. Main matches, uh, Bob Backlund pins mass superstar, uh, ending that feud, at least in New York. You had Pat Patterson defeating Ivan Koloff by countout. They had a little mini feud in the WWF. Jimmy Snuka and Sergeant Slaughter go to a 20-minute time limit draw. Again, I guess protecting both guys. And then Tony Atlas defeats Big John Studd by countout, which to me, Steve, indicates that John Studd, he's been there since, uh, I want to say, November 1982, is on his way out, but he was was not on his way out. Yeah, he, he would become uh, definitely uh, a key part of the national expansion uh, for our uh, LJN uh, people. Uh, he was in that first set of LJN dolls, and uh, he really would you know be important in WWF right up until uh, uh, end of uh, summer of '86. He was there for the Orndorff turn, and uh, and that would be about it. They would they would beat the machines, I think, in uh, Albano's final match uh, before he got phased out. And but uh, you know, Stud uh, would have a hell of a run, but mainly facing Andre most of that time. I mean, almost exclusively. That's mm-hmm. pretty much what John Studd was there for. Um, you know, we would have a lot of the time when Vince was going to a new city, he would either have uh, you know Hulk Hogan against whoever, sometimes Big John Studd, or Andre the Giant versus Big John Studd in, you know, a battle of the giants. And, you know, I'm seeing this on TV. Like, Big John Studd is still around. Like, WrestleMania, he has his big match with Andre the Giant. And I was like, I saw them wrestle two years ago why do i still care about this well i i think you know uh, one thing that the mcmahon's really always liked was just this the spectacle of wrestling uh they were they were big uh fans of like the ringling brothers circus and the spectacle of the circus i think that they looked at somebody like uh john studd as you know a giant uh man to to be a legitimate opponent against hogan or andre and so someone like that was very you know few and far between to get i mean they would bring in blackjack mulligan periodically but stud was younger and had a great look uh so they went with him 
Yeah, and even before I started getting newsletters, I thought Big John Studd was the most boring guy out there. I really did. I thought his interviews were boring. I thought, you know, he in the ring was noticeably just, you know, not the greatest worker. I didn't even know what a worker was, but I knew Studd wasn't one of them. And uh, But over time, Steve, I have come to appreciate Big John Studd because, I mean, he was a big part of, you know, what Vince McMahon was promoting. He was promoting big guys who got in the ring and pretended to fight. Yeah, I mean, looking back on it now, and, and I guess I felt this way at the time, I, I never thought like him wrestling was bad or uh, that he was poor or whatever. I know. I mean, I've heard that from the smart fans, but but he, he was this huge man. He would team up with Bundy. Uh, he would team up with Patera. I mean, they were very imposing, very strong, uh, dominant teams. He didn't have a, a ton of personality, but uh, he didn't really need to. I mean, he was this huge guy, but when they had Heenan with them, Heenan added a lot of the personality. So um, I, can, I can see why Vince continued to push him, even after he did numbers and numbers of jobs to uh, both Hogan and later on, uh, and Andre, of course. You know, when JCP got bought out by Turner 35 years ago, one of the first big names they went after was Big John Studd. They really? tried to get him to come in. And I, I mean, I remember me and all my wrestling buddies are like, no, no, you guys <laughs> don't understand you know, what this kind of wrestling was. But maybe we were a little too smart for our own good because Big John Studd was, I don't want to say a household name, but a very well-known pro wrestler. And in high hindsight he would have helped that company yeah he, he he was a known commodity and i'm sure his wrestling really wouldn't have changed that much i know for his big comeback that he did in 89 with wwf he actually uh, worked really hard at uh, trying to learn some new moves and try to add some more wrestling to his repertoire of moves to make him a little bit more interesting but you know that that run was very short-lived in 89 but um, I always look at John Studd as a, as a you know a nice star from this period of wrestling, uh, early to mid '80s, and definitely uh, earned a lot of money uh, for uh, for himself, for his family, and was uh, you know a very dependable guy for Vince and the Federation. I mean, I've heard over and over again, anytime John Studd had a really nice house, and anytime he had a visitor, he would say, well, I can thank Andre the Giant and Blackjack Mulligan for all of this. <laughs> and, and and it's been said about him, he was one of the nicest guys in wrestling. I know that Bobby Heenan shoot, he always said that uh, Studd was uh, way too nice to be in the business, but he uh, was in the business and he succeeded at it. Yeah, I, I always wondered why they billed him as being from Los Angeles, that he he just didn't have that Hollywood vibe to me. Well, I, I just, maybe uh, they thought of him as uh, like the Hollywood Hills you know, being a huge or whatever, but I don't know. I don't know why they pinned that on him. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to wrap up this episode of Stick to Wrestling. The hour always goes by so fast, and I have some good news for everyone. We still have some more audio for next week. We'll be taking questions that we asked from the Facebook group, and you're going to get an extra bonus, ladies and gentlemen. 10 extra days. We're going to go beyond December 21st, 1983 into January 1st, 1984. We'll stop then, so you're getting a bonus 10 days. We'll go to the rest of 1983. Steve, thank you for taking the time and being on Stick to Wrestling. It's great to be here with you, John, and I look forward to wrapping up the Backland era and starting the Hogan era with you. 
Yeah, the the your I mean everything changed 40 years ago and we just did not see it coming. I want to thank everyone for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, review of the WWF Fall 1983. We've got one more episode to go. Uh, we've got more audio and obviously a big change is coming uh, December 26, 1983. So. I'm looking forward to doing it. I hope you're looking forward to listening to it. Uh, I want to thank Brian Last for giving us this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing this show and being flexible when it comes to recording. Lou's great. And that's it. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols. Beat Bama. This concludes our podcast day.